0: How is there not more outrage in the injustices that we are letting happen in our name? I'm trying to create a movement of radical empathy for people that are in prison, for people who aren't in prison, but they're caught up in the criminal justice system. They can't vote. They can't get public housing. They can't volunteer in their kid's school because of their criminal record. So sharing stories like that's my book is about, I just want to create this sense that we really are all in this, like criminal justice actually is impacting us all. And it might be your son or your nephew.
1: My next guest is Shanti Bryan, a litigator and author. She is also the co-founder of Fog Break Justice. She is an educator and consultant for criminal justice reform and equity. Her book, Almost Innocent, is an exploration of her work, her clients, as well as, ironically, her personal experience when the criminal justice system landed at her front door. Enjoy the listen.
2: Well, Shanti, welcome to About Your Mother, Where Your Story Begins. Thanks so much for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: It's an honor. You've been on my list for a while, so it's so good to sit face-to-face via Zoom and talk to you about your work because there's so much to cover. But since this is About Your Mother, Where Your Story Begins, let's start at the beginning. You were raised by a single mom and had an absent father. How did that shape
0: you? In many, many ways. Ways that I'm still discovering, of course, through therapy and introspection still to this day. I think most profound probably was the sense of abandonment from my father and the sense that because of that, I wanted to please my mother so much. I wanted to be such a good, not just a good girl, an easy. I wanted to be easy. So I never wanted to be a demand on her. I wanted to be good. And then another impact was that I inherited somewhat this idea that like life is hard, that especially raising kids is very hard work and then emotionally, as as much as just physically, we all know how demanding it is. And of course, it was hard for her. She had me. She had a brief marriage. And then my sister joined us. And then she was raising my uncle, her, her brother, who has Downs. So she basically had three kids, single mom. She worked two jobs. She just, she worked her ass off. She really did. She, and, she, and she's a just amazing, hardworking person. But like, personally, it just took such a toll. Like it just was stressful. And she worked two jobs to give us, you know, food and, and shelter and I inherited that, even though I was in such different circumstances in terms of my family and financial situation. But I did have that sense, like this is hard, and that impacted me as a mother so much.
2: You say, I think in the book, by the way, almost innocent slayed the title. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. <laughs> there's so many layers. It's a, there's so much to talk about regarding the book. But I think you said or you referenced that, that was almost her mantra, like life is hard and you absorb that. We realized that, you know, the way we were raised influences the mother that we become, right? Or the things that we have to face and undo. So how did that influence you as a mother going through that experience with her and seeing her struggle?
0: Well, at first, so I had two kids in two years, essentially, I was a new lawyer. I was married to, I'm still married but to a man that used to play in the NFL. So we were living in New Orleans and, you know, without really a support network. I guess I related to her. Uh, I felt that feeling like this is overwhelming being a mother. It's, It's profoundly difficult in so many ways. I didn't have that worldview. Like I came, like, we did like, she did like family-based daycare. She did daycare centers. In fact, she, she taught child development. So her career was teaching daycare providers how to do their jobs. And so I didn't think about hiring like a private person to come. I didn't think about trying to get help or ask for help. I just was like overwhelmed with this sense like this is too hard.
2: You're incredibly accomplished in many things. But let's start with the book because it's so good. And like I said, there's so much to it. But the, your book starts with this line. I, your husband calls me, he says, I need a lawyer. So, wow. And what were the questions that you were asking yourself when you began writing the book? What were the things that you were looking to answer?
0: Well, he needed a lawyer because his company had just been served a subpoena. The Department of Justice was doing an investigation into a bid rigging scheme that had been happening really across the country, but in Northern California, where they're buying homes in auction and there's, you know, the bidders are paying each other not to bid and things like that. So my husband's company was involved in that and he got served the subpoena. So it was a profound moment because... I am an attorney and I and was currently a criminal defense attorney at that time. And so it's sort of like the world kind of turned on its head in one moment. And so the question was, how is this happening to me? Why and how? Like, a I had a sense, an ignorant sense, I guess, that like this was supposed to happen to other people. So why and how was this happening to me and to us? And at the same time that that was happening, I was representing two young men and I was an appellate attorney and you'll find reading the book that our chances are crap, you know, on appeal, like you have no chance to win essentially. But for some reason, these two men, I thought their stories involve such injustice um, Nick, one of them, was sentenced to 70 years in prison. He was the driver of the car and the shooter was his passenger. And the shooter took a deal and was out of prison in 10 years. And and the profound injustice of that was happening at the same time that uh, that Doug's case was happening. And so the, the other question I sought to explore in the book is how is there not more outrage in the injustices that we are letting happen in our name, right? A criminal yeah. is called People versus Nick. It's my name that we are sending Nick away to prison for 77 years, like a young kid. Yeah. And so those were the questions that I, I, I was... I was looking to answer when I started writing the book. And that was, you know, 10 years ago. It was a long process. And some answers I found and and I guess some I didn't.
2: <laughs> Did other ones come up that you didn't expect
0: uh, um, writing it? Yeah. I, I think that in the process of writing it, I was grappling a lot with the issues of who am I? that I have escaped, I've made plenty of pretty bad mistakes. I've committed crimes, as a matter of fact. And, and actually, a lot more of us have than we like to admit. I mean, we are all making mistakes. We're making, we're doing, making poor choices. We're committing crimes. And like this sense like, but I'm still good, I'm I'm the good people and the people I know we're good. Yes, we make mistakes, but we're essentially good. And that there's people over there or people in prison that are not that. And and sort of grappling with that question of how how did this happen? I think that's actually one of the the answers that I did come to through writing the book was the profound sense that we share human fallibility we are all in this together that that good and bad and innocence and guilt and us and them it's it's this spectrum that we're all on at all you know maybe daily we're moving along it and, the, and that we're really truly all in this together that we share so much more with Nick and and the people that are in prison than than we than we want to admit that we like to think about. So that's actually an answer that I found is is this shared humanity. And I love that you do that. You do put yourself
2: out there and you're so vulnerable and you admit like these are the things that I did. These are the crimes we commit and really make it real that we're all teetering on the edge, right? Like you just said. But this is a big thing, and I know it's really near and dear to your heart and part of your work is, where does this line of injustice come from? Because it seems so huge to have someone like Nick, who's driving the car and ends up with this sentence very different than the person who actually fired the gun. Help us make sense of that. Like, how does it exist so broadly? And then what can we do to fix it?
0: (laughs) Well, I, I would say the answer is, number one, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I, mean, I get in the way that it makes sense and, and this is we live in a uh era of human disconnection, of utter lack of empathy for humanity. And especially in the United States, we live in a history of racism and white supremacy. I mean, we our country had slavery for longer than we haven't had it. I'm on a lonely land right here in the East Bay. So there's a history of taking and stealing land from Native Americans. So and, and there's a through line there absolutely between you know slavery and racism. And then there was Jim Crow and then there's mass incarceration. So that's really explored a lot by a lot of scholars, including Brian Stevenson and Michelle Alexander. So I guess that's the why. it doesn't make sense, but that that's how maybe we got here. My work, um, first as a criminal defense attorney, trying to address that and and create justice one individual case at a time, got to the point where, it was, again, too hard and uh, and too overwhelming. I, I had too much empathy. And I just, I got to the place where it was hurting my heart so profoundly. And when Doug's case came into our lives, then it just was even more so. It's just the fear. Doug, I have to acknowledge the uh, extreme privilege that Doug and I had to hire extremely good lawyers that you know that's an advantage that we had that people like Nick don't have but i think the thing that we sh- we did share with people in the criminal justice system is this insane fear and, and rightly so like the power of the government should be feared it's intense and it's it's scary. So we did share that experience. I think you asked me what do what should we do about it? Yeah.
2: My heart breaks with you because I can't imagine being so even, you know, reading your book, these stories break your heart, but I can't imagine living it every day and knowing that the likelihood of success is low, like we talked about that the appeals is going to go through. It's like having your heart broken all the time and then the fear on top of it when this thing happened to Doug you feel kind of helpless, like what can we do to change this? Go a little bit into your work and and what are some things that are, incrementally we can do to help address these
0: issues? They're huge. Yeah, so my, my work currently is with my organization I co-founded called Fog Break Justice. And our theory starting out was if the criminal case is, is a big spectrum or journey I was sort of at the very, very end of that journey right before the US Supreme Court for my clients. And if we could go to the very, very beginning, the entry point for most people into the criminal justice system is the arrest, is that first interaction with police. And we all are profoundly aware now in this country of how biased, unfair, cruel, and racist that. First interaction can be, and we came to it thinking if we could make that interaction a little bit more fair, then we could create just a cascading amount of fairness because it works the other way. So, like you have it, bias, bias, and racism in in that first interaction, and then that's compounded by the the bias of the prosecutor, the bias of the jury, the bias of the judge, the bias of the probation or parole officer. So it goes on and on and on. So to eliminate that at the beginning was our theory and we have worked with a lot of police departments to to increase fairness, to just raise awareness of the impact of our biases, you know, without our even conscious awareness. Even if we do, there's actually one study that says e- the more egalitarian you think you are, the more bias might be impacting your decision making because you're so unaware. So we work with with all criminal justice um, professionals and we've actually expanded our consulting and education to civic and municipal governments and even businesses that are you know really want to learn about reducing bias, increasing fairness, promoting equity, having inclusive work environments, because really like corp. So that's one thing people could do. Your question is, what could we do? Finally, I'm getting back to the question. Yeah, it's all good. Um, Yeah, well, we all can do something. So like you, you work for a company, you're in HR, you're in hiring, hire formerly incarcerated people, number one, or just... Uh, Be aware of equity issues like hire people that don't seem like a good culture fit, maybe like culture fits a bad way to hire people because you're just hiring people that looks like yourself. Whatever you are doing, if you are anti-racist and you are caring about creating equity, that impacts the criminal justice system. But to be even like real, like let's focus a little bit more, know who you vote for for DA. Mm. That's huge. Prosecutors have such discretion for sentencing and charging and plea agreements. You you have to know who you're voting for. And there's a whole new breed of what they call them progressive prosecutors. And I would say stay the course with the progressive prosecutors. Crime rates are going up. But the the science shows incarceration has zero to minimal impact on crime rates. So throwing people in prison, even when crime is going up, is not the answer. So stay the course on criminal justice reform. Share stories. I'm trying to create a movement of radical empathy for people that are in prison, for people who aren't in prison but they're caught up in the criminal justice system. They can't vote. They can't get public housing. They can't um, volunteer in their kids' school because of their criminal record. So sharing stories about like that's my book is about, I, I just want to create this sense that we really are all in this. Like criminal justice actually is impacting us all. And, you know, it might be your son or your nephew, and you're going to be praying that that DA is fair and that he's not going to offer up a 70-year sentence or a 25-year plea bargain to your son for the mistake he made last night.
2: Like you said, I mean, we are all capable of dumb things. (laughs) Right? And we're making mistakes every day. The one interesting stat that you had was that 90, what was it? 95% of um, people take the plea deal?
0: Yeah, it's, it's um, much more in the federal system. So it's somewhere between, you know, 95, you know, 90 and 99%. If you, you know, state and federal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the plea system is very, very broken. We charge so many crimes. The system is not set up to be able to have that many trials. Prosecutors overcharge. And so the incentive to take the plea, no matter what you've done or you haven't done, is incredible. Yeah, so I had one client who she was involved in a supposed, you know, they charged her with being involved in an armed robbery of a blockbuster. and. It wasn't, she said she wasn't involved at all. That The plea offer was six months in jail. She was a single mother, two young daughters. And she said she didn't do it. So she didn't take the, the offer six months in jail. And she ended up with seven years in prison. You know, her daughters both went to their, their fathers. She lost her family. To me, like, what was the fair sentence for that? For her involvement? It seems like the pair sentence was six months. It's not what happened. So yeah, the plea system is is very harmful, very broken. That's related to like cash bail. People that can't afford bail, like a $1,000 bail obviously have quite an incentive to plead guilty no matter what has happened because they will sit. They will sit there in jail often for longer than the sentence would have been trying to fight it and so clearly that's unfair like that someone that can't afford bail sits in jail and and takes a plea where someone you know with the resources can can go free and often gets their charges dropped or reduced.
2: And how incredible that you had that you got to see it from both perspectives yeah. because of right you
0: well, could have never imagined. Yeah. If you think about 77 years in prison, I'm thinking about my husband going to prison for literally one month. Yeah. And it's just, it sort of shook it, not sort of, it shook my world. It shook my foundations. And I think a lot of people I know. And, and everyone in their country, we were fascinated by that college admission scandal. Oh, yeah, it's a juicy one. And how much attention was paid to a, particularly the woman that was a Lori Laughlin, right? Yeah <laughs> And yeah. we were just fascinated, like, is she going to, you know, get two weeks? Could she get six months? And well, I mean, we, we couldn't stop thinking like, and, and I guess there's a lot of white privileged women with kids going to college that are obsessed. Maybe that's why I think, oh, my God, she could do three months in prison. That's incredible, right? Well, no. I mean, no. And then we can throw away people's lives. We hand out 10 years in prison like it's nothing.
2: Like it's trick or treating yeah. and they just disappear, no attention. Yeah. Oh, what painful and beautiful work that you've done to bring these to light and to create empathy around them. It's just, it's incredible. How have you coped at times with these very heavy issues? How, how do you navigate your own well being in, in those situations?
0: You mean besides coffee and wine? Well, that's a given.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. I should have. <laughs> if you're anything like me, coffee and wine is just,
0: it's a given. <laughs> okay, chocolate. Chocolate. <laughs> I would say, how can I dealt with these? I had the privilege to take a sabbatical from that work and start writing this book. So I spent a couple of years pretty much working on this book. That was, that, that's a privilege to be able to a right and have that time for introspection and what's my role. I have a therapist (laughs) and that's one way I, I, I can deal with some of these issues. I have my family. I have my, you know, my beautiful children that are a constant source of learning and growth and challenge. And I have tried to really grace that. It once was very hard. I had that hard mentality and I, I've tried to um, sort of widen my perspective and see my children and my family as a way for me to grow, a way for me to heal my self and my childhood issues and I think I've I've done that. I, I ended up being a pretty good mom. I'm proud of, of that work that I've done. I like to work out. My my COVID thing has been lifting weights and like having that sense of just like physical strength. That has really helped me during some hard times.
2: I'm with you on the coffee and the wine and I'm working <laughs> out too. <laughs> You know, it's a, uh, yeah, I think you need that. It clears your head to get the endorphins going, but it's also feeling strong, feeling, yes, life is hard, but you can, you're fit and you can you can address it, right? Because you're strong and you stand tall. I'm with you on that. And I love what you said about mothering. I mean, I think mothering makes us look at our own issues. It's this middle age conundrum that we get in where we have kids and then we're like, oh, oh, wow. You have to reflect on your own childhood. And then, well, what, what kind of parent do I want to be? and what was I given and that's real work
0: that's real work yeah it, it has been and i i want to bring it back to my mom too because you know having her seeing her be a grandmother and really finding joy in her grandkids my kids my sister's kids has has helped our relationship really it's been like a new perspective for me to, to see her have that growth and that's really been a gift and then she's you know she's been able there have been opportunities for her to be um a different kind of mom to me and and to be more present and and have more joy and more fun and more um really she's taken care of me actually as an adult a few times so it it's that relationship has has really grown and continues to um yeah to grow I she just turned 70 and my sister and I her she had one item on her bucket list one okay just one just one and that, that's a problem, right? Cause then you're a on bucket list. Um she's worked a tiny bucket. But her her one, she she grew up in Hawaii and her her one bucket list item was to stay at the Royal Hawaiian, this big, beautiful old pink uh, hotel on Waikiki Beach. And so my sister and I were able to take her there and um it was it was fabulous. We all had a really good time. We all um, drank a lot of my ties and, and really like blew it out. So it you know it's fun to have that changing relationship with your mom too. It is yeah. It it it's
2: always evolving. How was she about the book? Because it's hard to write about your family. This
0: is a point of um, maybe not quite contention, but. I think she was a little sad. I I don't think that I gave her the credit that she deserved. She comes across as being a little bit not permissive, but how how would you describe it? She sort of um absent. There was a word to use. I mean, she's sort of like she wasn't very she was consumed kind of with life. And, and you know what? She was. This is what parents these days need to be more like, which is like Shanti. It's your life. You want to go to Cal. You want to go to Modesto Junior College. Whatever is right for you, you you do what's right for you. And and I'm and in the book, it comes across as being a little bit. Mm, uh, she's not ambitious. And she wasn't ambitious for me. And it just was like, but that's just, that's just who she is. She's, and so I should have come back. And I've I've said this before, I think at a book talk, I should have come back. My one regret is that I didn't come back at the end of the book and sort of give her some shout out for really like rocking it. I mean, she did her own plumbing She'll like take a shot of whiskey with you, like in a heartbeat. Like Love her. <laughs> very funny. She's very outspoken. And you know what? She 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 kicked ass on family dinner. And there's parenting experts now that are like family dinner, this is the key to all success. We come together, we eat, we share our lives. She had family dinner of, like every night and a lot of times it was Kentucky fried chicken but it didn't matter we sat around we ate it and I should have said something like that in the book you just did I did and <laughs> did shout out to grandma Sue the grandma Sue she, she <laughs> the character she yeah an absolute character and she's like a feminist role model really like she worked so hard
2: Oh, for that time, for sure. And honestly, when I was reading it, I just thought Survivor, like she was getting it done. It wasn't easy, the setup that she had, but she got it done. And I think in some ways, maybe, maybe modeled it for you, which kind of drove you to be so successful and so driven in in being a student and your work and everything like that. That's kind of what I extracted.
0: Yes, you're right. She, she worked very hard. She had two jobs. She was getting her master's degree while doing the two jobs. She finally got a full time job. Um, I was almost out of the house where she got benefits and, and she did, she made it through, you know, she made it through. And my sister and I. She sent us both to college. We're both professional, successful women. We both have three kids. We both have good marriages. Even my uncle Steve Downs, he just moved out. She's an em- my mother is an empty nester as of like a year ago. Wow. Yeah. So he's still alive and doing great. And yeah. So she she not only survived. She she thrived through all of that. And um, yeah, that, that was a role model for me. Continues to be like, we're going to make it through some really hard stuff. So what's nice for you? Another book? (laughs) That's funny. You should say that. No. Well, I mean, if I do, maybe I could be on again, because it's, it's going to be about being a wife and a mother and, mothering and being a woman in this time of me too. And I don't know, you know, miniature bra tops are coming back. And I, I just, it's, it's intense. It's so intense to be a, a wife and a mother and a woman right now. It and is. That's what I, if I were to write a new book, that's what it would be about. Well, how about this? How about you come back and we'll talk about that stuff. We'll create our list of things
2: and then that'll be a way because I'd love to have you back on the show. That would be awesome. Okay,
0: thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for sharing your story, all of it. It's so awesome. Thank you.
1: Shanti's work reminds me of Brian Stevenson, the author of the book and recent movie, Just Mercy. Like him, she is a fighter of radical empathy and someone who is not afraid to remind us that we all are tiptoeing around potential criminal mistakes. Yet, the justice system doesn't always treat us the same. Go get her book. It will move you in unexpected ways. Until next time, stay curious and be well.